Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to episode 333 here on the Motorcycle Man podcast. Joining me today here in the V-Twin Cafe is none other than author, motorcyclist, and I'll call him humorist, Graham Field. And he's here today to talk to us about his brand new book that's coming out later this month. But first, the Motorcycle Man podcast is brought to you by Scorpion Helmets. Now, they offer high-quality, innovative motorcycle helmets and technical apparel at an incredible value. To learn more, Go visit them at scorpionusa.com. And if you have the time, head on over to the Ride With Ted YouTube channel, and you can see the latest video, which is an actual review of the Scorpion EXO ST1400 carbon helmet. And, of course, wild-ass seats. Now, you can improve your comfort and ability to stay in the saddle longer with a cushion from wild-ass seats. So if you're tired of those painful pressure points and fatigue, Get on over to wild-ass.com and get your cushion today. Make sure you tell the real Craig Johnson that the Motorcycle Men podcast sent you. And, of course, for the best in casual riding gear for men and women, there's only one place you should be going, and that is Tobacco Motorwear. Now visit them at tobaccomotorwear.com. That's tobaccomotorwear.com, and our listeners will get 10% off your order when you use the code MOTOMEN. Your safety is worth it, boys and girls, so get on over there, get in Dave's pants, and tell them that the Motorcycle Man podcast sent you. And that's it for all of that. Now, it's time for that great interview with our good friend, Graham Field. Okay, joining me all the way from, and you're in still in Bulgaria, right? Yeah, Bulgaria. Good stuff. stuff. (laughs) My very good friend, author, Graham Field. Graham, how you doing, man? Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, good to be here. It's been a while since we talked. I think it was probably sometime last year we we had a chat. I Yeah, was it last year? It's it's all going by a little bit too quickly. I don't remember it anyway. Well, uh, for those who have been under a rock for most of their lives why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you do right yes my elevator pitch i've been trying to rehearse this uh <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a compelling and interesting way uh so uh, my name's Grandfield. i've been riding motorcycles since before i was old enough to have a license i've been traveling since before i was old enough to have my own passport I've been keeping a diary for the last 35, bless you, I've been keeping a diary for the last 35 years of my life, and uh, I think this is my sixth or seventh book, it's just written, all my books are in diary format, they are from diaries of, or travels of far-flung places, like Mongolia, the Arctic Circle, South Korea, Guatemala, but... Uh, and also lesser travels. More uh, the, the point of all of them, I think, is these are never high-budget, big support trips. They're always solo trips. They're always on a very small budget. And proving, really, that if you're determined enough, you can really do anything. You don't need any backup. You don't need a huge income. Um, if you can just find... My trips are generally about 100 days long. If you can find a 100-day sabbatical, um, that's the only thing you have to do. Oh, which isn't impossible, you know, that that, um, that I do. So this is not, you know, putting your life on hold and riding around the world for three years. Um, these trips are, are feasible. And in my line of work, I was a truck driver. My work was seasonal because I used to do fruit and veg. So everybody stopped eating salad in about November. <laughs> so there was no work until the following spring. Um, so rather than spend a miserable winter in, in England, I would take off to a cheaper country, Asia or India or, or wherever, and uh, disappear for a while. And uh, so that tends to be what I do, and that's generally what my trips are about. Escapism, really, escapism. Yeah. So, so now, this is your sixth book? Yeah, well, <laughs> it was... He got me mentally writing. counting them now. 
But I've been writing it for a whole year. I yeah. started on the 18th on the 18th of January last year. I started my, my normal routine is you know, after Christmas, New Year, I do my tax return, <laughs> then, which is the last horrendous thing, and then I start writing. And generally, it takes as long as a trip. It takes about three months. And this book, it was going to be a really short story, which was going to be free um, Amazon download, a free Kindle download. That was the point of it, and it was about. Do I want to give it away? I'll give it away. It was, it was, you know, can you hear? I, okay. I had a friend who was a DJ on commercial radio, and he used to say on a slow day, this was sort of before the internet, he said on a slow day, when there's nothing to talk about, he said there are two things that gets the phone ringing. One is you ask anybody, have you ever had an unfair parking ticket? And because everybody has, you know, and the other one was, have you ever met anybody famous? You know, of course, we've all had our brushes with fame. And they were the things that got the phones ringing, got the, the, the interaction and, and stopped him from having a dull radio show. So based on that, I was going to tell a little story about um, when I met someone famous. And it was that I was in the pool and I was taking a sightseeing flight around Everest. And the only other English-speaking passenger on the plane was Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin. So it was pretty cool. I didn't really notice Everest. (laughs) (laughs) Mountain? What mountain? (laughs) Uh, It was a single-seat plane. There's a single seat on each side, so everybody's got a window seat. And you fly out, you'll see Everest out the left. You fly back, you'll see out the right. And I leant across the aisle over my girlfriend um, to take a photograph. And she says, focus, because <laughs> she can see all of these Jimmy Page. And, um, and I said, no, it's automatic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that was going to be my short story. But as I wrote that, I needed a little bit of backstory, which was I'd met my girlfriend having already cycled through India um, while she was finishing her contract at work and waiting for her to come out. But that wasn't my first cycling trip. I'd cycled the year before in bought my, a bicycle in Thailand and cycled into China. And that needed telling. So this little short free story turned into a 220,000 word, 10 month work, massive book. And so when it was finally done, I got in touch with my copy editor and I said, you know, I don't know what to do with it really because a book which is 220,000 words long has a spine which is close to two inches thick. So it's expensive to print, it's daunting to pick up, it's daunting to start, and you have to have a high price tag on it. So he said, well, why don't... It, it, and there's sort of four stories, really, because there was the um, cycling in India, the cycling in China, the cycling in Thailand, and the meeting Jimmy Page. So four, four stories. So he said, let's make it a trilogy. Look, that's obvious. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's what it is. This is the first part of a trilogy. Uh, and what I really need to emphasize is, um, because I've, I've had a little bit, because this is the first interview I'm doing promoting it. Um, but, of course, there's been social media well, thank and you. stuff. And, well, you're, 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 um, thank you for, for jumping on and saying, <laughs> would you like to talk about your book? books? What are you talking about? What am I talking about? So, anyway, um, it, what... Um, I've got where I was now. So, uh, yeah, so we did this treaty thing. And what it's going to be... No, I really have lost the thread. What was I going to talk about? Um, bam, bam, bam. About the trilogy? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, so we do this first part it. of the book, so they said, let's make it a trilogy. Now, so is it really going to be three books? Oh, yeah, no, this is the thing. No, I know I was going to say. So what people have been saying, and because I've got this sort of faithful readership who came from the adventure bike scene, who bought the adventure bike books and then was sort of bought the um you know the, the the books about moving to bulgaria which is not about adventure biking well it's not but it's still a biker right about his life so you know you can't take the biker out of me it's in my blood so it's still you know got biker or intact story and the same with this what you are not getting is a lycra clad cyclist with pumped calf muscles doing you know 150 kilometers a day that is not what it's about and that's why 
the title is I Should Lift the Whiskey because um, I had all the wrong gear. I had no clue. I took a litre bottle of whiskey with me because I bought it in duty free and I wasn't about to discard it. And, it, and whiskey's my winter drink. And I was in humid Thailand and trying to neck whiskey when it's so hot and humid outside. And, and you didn't ask for ice because it's made with local water and it's going to go right through you and you don't want a runny bum ever but you certainly don't want one when you're on a bicycle <laughs> your bum gets enough enough abuse as it is without having chronic <laughs> diarrhea um so anyway so yeah so what it is not is a high endurance macho um lycra clad bicycle endurance book it's about a idiot biker who didn't have a clue jumping on a bicycle and trying to ride to china <laughs> <laughs> you know it's funny because i was gonna i was gonna ask you this question of, of, about the book and I, I i think there's a need to now and i just want to comment is that uh like nirvana and not working this is it's it's not a motorcycle related book i mean there may be mention of motorcycles in them but this new book is is, is although it has two wheels involved just two wheels involved but and and the title which is i should have left the whiskey you know it, it implies that alcohol played a large part in this so, uh, which is not very different from your other books so uh so you've told us briefly about the book now i got now you sent me a little excerpt of the book and which i really appreciate but i tell you this is the first time i honestly have read a portion of a book or read a book where I seemed like I could smell and taste everything that was going on in this dystopian environment you were riding through. I mean, how did that strike you at first? Uh, riding it? Um, well, you do. I mean, this is the great thing about a bicycle. There's not many good things about a bicycle. Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> One of the good things is the pace slows. And that's yes. kind of the point yeah. of the book as well, is it's written at a slow pace. It, it, and, and the series, the, the series of this book is the Rambling On series um, with the Jimmy Page connection, Rambling On. But because, you know, you may have already noticed at this point in the interview, I do tend to ramble on. A bit. You know what? So, it wouldn't be in a, a Graham interview if there wasn't rambling. <laughs> so it is, it's about a slow pace. And it, it says in the introduction, you know, if you're a, when does the journey, what page does the journey start on kind of person? You're really not going to get on with this book at all because it's all about anecdotes. It's all about just the pace of life. And the pace of life is slow on a bicycle. Mm -hmm. And and because of that, you can't help but have interactions that perhaps you'd rather not have. You know, if you were encaged in a, in a four-wheel drive with a screen around you, you wouldn't have them. If you were on a bike with a helmet and a visor on, you wouldn't have them. But on a bicycle, you have no choice. You can't get away from them. You smell them, you taste them, you speak to them, That's and right. you need them because yeah. you need supplies. You need water constantly, and you have to stop at places you'd rather really not. You know, on a motorbike, you can, if you're in an area you don't like, you can twist the throttle, or you can go for 50 miles with a bursting bladder and a dry throat, and you can be out of it. Well, that's a day's ride. There ain't no way you're going to do that on a bicycle. You have to interact. You have to deal with this stuff. So consequently, the reward is that you find yourself in situations that perhaps you'd rather not. But you become a part of everything you pass through. Yes. You become a part of their lives, however briefly. If you're on a bike, they'll turn their head and look and you may exchange a wave But if, uh, on a motorcycle. But yeah. if you're on a bicycle, there is verbal interaction. There is stuff like that. And um, that is the big, big difference for better or worse. And some, because you don't always want to be social. You don't want to talk to everybody. The conversation <laughs> doesn't have a true. huge amount of variety. You know, hello, where are you from? Where you go? You know, that's pretty much the extent of it. <laughs> but but it, it's constant. And so you are, you could, you can still find yourself lonely, but you are certainly never isolated. You know, that's, you know, it's interesting about it because, you know, I'm a cyclist myself. And what a lot of people who, who don't ride a bicycle know is that when you get in an environment, let's say, like on a motorcycle, like when you when you are in uh, certain areas, areas, you know, uh, like when you travel by a motorcycle or a car or however you're traveling, you know, time is measured in um, in, in minutes and, and in miles. But when you travel by bicycle, it's time is measured in in hours and days. So things are a little, like you said, are a little slower. 
and the world comes at you way differently. But from your perspective, where you were going, it's way different. Now, where did this all? Where did this start? Well, um, it started because um, the, oh, the other thing I should point out: this is twenty years ago. These really? stories happened in two thousand two and two thousand three. Right. Wow. Um, okay. So really little internet. Um, there was there. In fact, in two thousand and two, there were there, if there were internet cafes, I didn't really know about it because I didn't have an email address, and um, <laughs> and the and the mobile phones would, would simply for SMS and calling. Yeah, and and that's all they did. So there, there was certainly no there was certainly no social media. There wasn't a selfie culture or anything like that. Right. And and in fact, there there's a bit in the book where I say you know, I was riding along this beach. Uh, I think it was in India. I was riding along this beach, and it was just beautiful, flat. There was nothing around. And I said, so I got my camera, put it in my hand, pointed it at, my, at myself, held my arm at full length, and pressed the shutter button. I said, if only there was a term for that it would have saved me 32 <laughs> words <laughs> wow yeah you know you know people don't think about that yeah so anyway um so yeah so the journey was 20 years ago what uh, started and what started was prior to that about two years then in fact uh, for the millennium i'd gone down to rio in brazil to celebrate the, the millennium happening okay and then continued uh, on just this was just backpacking and uh, down in Patagonia, I done, did this uh, hike in Torres del Paine's uh, National Park. Okay. Again, completely unprepared. I had a, a, a transparent Mac that I bought in Walmart and some dodgy tennis shoes. And again, totally unprepared. And I was up at one of the stops, refugios they're called, these little sort of huts where you stay. And the one at this particular peak was just plastic. Uh, that's all it was. And it was dripping condensation. It was freezing cold, not the cold enough to snow or, or freeze, but just dripping condensation. There were about three or four people in there passing around some spirit, which wasn't enough to get drunk, wasn't enough to warm you. And all I had to do was get in my inadequate sleeping bag in my inadequate tent and try and sleep 12 hours of freezing night away before it got light again. Now, one of the guys in this little freezing plastic bag of a shelter, um, I think it was Belgium, and he cycled from Alaska and he come all the way down to Patagonia. Wow. And and this hike for him was a little break. He was taking a little walk away from the bicycle. And you know, I didn't think it made a huge impression on me. I don't really recall any stories that he told, but it just, from someone who had predominantly backpacked and motorcycle journeys were within the country or when I was living in America within the within the States, never cross borders. Right. It sort of occurred to me that it would be a cheap way of doing international travel without having to worry about carnets and uh, and and all the documents that would be involved with taking sure. a motor vehicle across international borders. A bicycle would be so much easier. So um, anyway, uh, so I think that's where the seed was planted. And I was, uh, when I finished that trip, I went and I was living in Colorado and I kind of went back there. And slowly this plan sort of germinated. And I'd also been taking a Mandarin Chinese language class for about 18 months. And uh, hope that worked out me, better than your Bulgarian. Oh, God. You know, <laughs> when, at, at what point in life am I going to realize I will always be monolinguistic? I just can't do it. I remember. Uh, because apart from the, 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 I mean, I didn't bother trying to learn the characters. It was just the language. But it's all it, a bit like Bulgarian. It's gender specific and it's tonal as well. And and the little lines on Japanese characters. If a line goes up, then you go what? And if it goes down, it's go whoa. And if it like goes wrong, go whoa. And so the lines on the characters tell you the tone of the same. And, and all I remember was wahuapijio, which means I drink beer. <laughs> No, not an alcohol-related statement. No, and that's probably wrong. Um, anyway, uh, so so I learned, or you know, did Chinese class for a year and a half. And when I went back to England, I'd be in my truck, dr truck driving, and listening to my Chinese teachers' tapes and uh, and and trying to learn Chinese. So that was always the plan, and so that's where it was. So and so, what I did. I thought, well, I'll fly to Bangkok. I'm not really telling you the whole story here, but I thought I'll fly to Bangkok because it is 
the travelers hub of asia everybody or most people begin and end their trip there you know it is there's one particular place the kosan road area where everybody comes and goes and, and you can't really help to avoid but avoid it uh, and i went there flew there on my own and um well and i think i was about 38 at the time maybe maybe something like that let me think yeah well anyway i could do the math about that something like that and and a single male flying to Thailand, and all the other single males were just sex tourists. They were all flying out to Thailand to go and shag pretty Thai girls. Um, and I wasn't. I was going there to ride a bike. Not <laughs> and so I was, I, there was instant judgment, which I really resented. <laughs> and uh, so I got, anyway, I got there, and I got to this Kosan Road, which is predominantly a, a backpacky area. Right. Uh, although it's a little bit more diverse. It's not just your gap here. And got this little box of a room, no windows, dumped the pack, jet lagged to hell, went out on the streets, uh, and I thought, I'm just going to sit, have a beer, climatize, watch everything come in and going. And I'm, I'm halfway down my very first beer, and this guy walks along, pushing a bicycle, the for sale sign. And I thought to myself, yep, that's exactly the sort of thing I'm looking for. So you didn't that's have... exactly a... what I'm looking for. So wait, so you didn't have a bike when you first went there? No, I had nothing. Oh, wow. Ran some dollars in my wallet. <laughs> and I thought, that's exactly what I'm looking for. So I ran after him, leaving my beer, which was a huge dilemma. And um, You could have run it with it, you. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, and then I have the restaurant owner, owner running after me. Hey, where you go with that beer? Where you go? You're not paying. You're not paying. Um, so anyway, um, long story short, I bought his bike off him. And he had cycled from Belgium... Uh, I think he'd cycled across the States, up to Alaska, down to Patagonia, where he'd met his Chilean girlfriend. They'd cycled across America, across Australia, and then to Indonesia, and then Singapore, up through Malaysia, Bangkok, which was the end of her trip. And it was her bicycle he was selling. Um, so it was a little bit small, but it was fine. So anyway, so I bought this bike off of him, and that's kind of where the journey started. So consequently, although I'd gone with a plan, I hadn't really gone with a clue, which is why I had a backpack <laughs> full of luggage, which included two um, or stereo speakers, which took huge batteries um, to, to power me cassette Walkman and me cassettes. Oh, no, actually, it was a display. It was an MP3 display. So that I had high-top trainers, high-top tennis shoes, as well as sandals, and a litre bottle of whiskey. So not really your ideal lightweight travel. <laughs> no. <laughs> so you started in Bangkok, and where did you finally end? Where did it finally well, end? Or did this it? This is a tricky bit, because, oh, okay. because when does the journey end? Um, so what happened was, uh, within the book, um, I cycled China, getting uh, cycled Thailand, getting to the very north, the Chinese border, where I was hoping I could just skip over and go into China, but it wasn't that simple. All right. Uh, and and then I was going to have to fly from northern Thailand into southern China. I didn't even. I mean, China's a big country, and this is what has been difficult to sort of quantify because people, oh, what you cycled across China, you cycled through China, you circumnavigated China. No, not really. I just flew to an airport, went up and down a bit, and then came back. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> And anyway, none of that is in the first book. That all is right. all in the second book. So the first book ends where I, I just get to China. Because it was in bloody February. It was freezing cold. The whole country was under a blanket of snow. So it was hardly the right time. It was good. The tourist count was low. The guest houses were empty. <laughs> you know, I recall you doing this several times where you do these trips in the dead of winter. You did that in the you States. What? What's up with that? <laughs> Well, like I say, you know, people don't buy vegetable in the winter. That's when I get the time off. Okay. So, so, but the book is intertwined with a year later, the India trip. So it kind of flashes back and forth between the Thai trip and the cycling in India a right. year later. So that is kind of what it's about. So saying, asking where it ends is very difficult. Yeah. I can give you a date. It ends, both book ends on the New Year's Eve of 2002 and New Year's Eve of 2002 because they kind of run concurrently, is that the word? And, uh, <laughs> and so they kind of run like that. But where it ends is at the beginning of part two. That's where it ends. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> now, listen, with most of your other books, which I always found very entertaining about them, is that while you always had a destination in mind 
It's the parts in between that were like filled with vagary. So <laughs> now was there any planning involved with this at all? Not really. Um no. <laughs> I'd like to say there was. So um, you just you did I, just wing it? Yeah, I wasn't particularly fit. Um, I'd been doing physical work. When I worked for the States, I'd been doing physical work, like, uh, you know, um, manual labour and that. So yeah. by, I was I was fit in that way. But And I used to go to the gym a bit. But I wasn't, it wasn't like I'd been cycling. Right. I, oh, in the last sort of month in England, I'd cycle to the pub to see friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's my practice. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's easy five miles up to the pub. Yeah, back. of course. Yeah. So... Well, the five miles back is always harder than the five miles there. Yeah, definitely. Um, so there was that, um, but no, there was no plan, and there was really no. Uh, as a as a traveller, I'm quite well experienced, and I have some lists of what to take and not to take. But as a cyclist, no, absolutely not. I mean, uh, and I, I think a lot of people who, who can relate to this, you know, you've got your panniers. And, and in the build-up to your trip and your preparation, whether it's months or weeks or whatever, you pack those panniers. They're a piece of art. They are absolutely full brimming. There's a place for everything. You know where it is. And if you want to stop and get a banana, forget it. There's nowhere to put it. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. You know, because when you're traveling as a, a, if you're a motorcycle traveler, you're, you're definitely a minimalist. There's no question mm. about that. If you're a cyclist, you are the minimalist minimalist. You are. You have to be. Yeah. And and you can't. You know, apart from peanuts, uh, which I kept in my little bar bag, I was just stuffed peanuts down the throat. Um, that was it. You know. And and this is and this is the thing. You would frequently need water, and it would have to be bottled or boiled. You couldn't just have like water. Of course not. Yeah. And those sort of going back to what I was saying earlier. Those are the interactions. Those are the times when you um, just have to interact with locals and, and that's great when there's a convenience store a little shop or, or a gas station or something but when you're out in the jungle out in the hills and you can hear the waterfalls and you think oh, am i going to drink from the waterfall or i'm going to hope for a village and uh, those are the times when you really find yourself in um dealing with people who haven't seen anything like, sorry is it people who haven't seen anything like you before <laughs> yeah you know you have to think that those environments that they've probably seen travelers cyclists like that passing through not all i guess frequently but i guess it's the infrequency of cycling cyclists coming through that way all packed with panniers and stuff like that but let's talk about the bike <laughs> now i have to assume it wasn't you know one of these top of the line things that and all the proper gear and all that stuff like that but as far as it goes for your packing and what you put in it and everything, all that. Give us some insight into that. Uh, right. Well, I don't. I, I should know what the make of the bike was, but I didn't. It was painted matte black. So, which, okay. <laughs> you couldn't ask for better. Um, it was a little bit small because the, the this Chilean girl who had ridden it before me was a sort of petite girl, um, and. I had trouble. I mean, obviously, the saddle was uncomfortable. That's just, you know, you've got to develop that muscle in your bum to, to do it. Yeah. And, and that comes with time. And also, I had a huge problem with my knees because I wasn't fully extending my knee when I was cycling. Right. I have these issues. Again, I didn't know anything about the, the, the length of rotation of the pedals or anything like that. Uh, so it had, it had panniers front and rear um, and a bar bag. There was no backpack to speak of. Um, it had to, uh, oh, I found this really cool bicycle shop in Bangkok, which I would go to all the time and get various accessories. Because you, you, know, you buy something new, whatever it is, you tend oh, yeah. to accessorize it. Of course. Um, which is the last thing you need. You just keep buying more. <laughs> more <things>. stuff. <laughs> yeah. You need more stuff. So there was, uh, so, um, so I, I wasn't, and again, I remember, I don't know at what point it was, I made a list writing down the names of things like the derailleur and the pump and the gears and writing down names and then finding out that it was all top of the range stuff. Oh, really? Not, ne not necessarily 
this year's top of the range, but, you know, 15 years ago, it was top of the range. Sure. And yeah, so right. someone had loved that bike. Someone had spent a lot of money on it and, and it had been used, very well used. Uh, but it was adequate. It was good enough. When I, I got to China, I met two fanatical Australian cyclists who had come from England and were cycling back to Australia. And they knew everything there was to know about cycling. And uh, and they said, well, your two dif- discomforts are, uh, are the saddle and uh, and your, your leg stretch. And so you need to put your seat up higher or really what you need is a bigger frame. And so the, the two problems I were because of a, of a Chilean girl's ass and a Chilean girl's <laughs> legs were not compatible with my ass and my legs. And, and they were like the two issues, really. <laughs> well, well, how tall are you? You're like six feet tall, right? Uh, yeah, no, just under. Yeah, I'm about 5'10", 5'11". Okay, so yeah, so you know, yeah, when, when you're talking about a little petite girl, there's a little bit of a difference between the inseam there. So yeah. Yes. So, how much weight do you think you were carrying? Oh, I, I did have the stats because they were they they have these big scales on the side of the road in Thailand, and I would oh, get really? on myself and my bike. I think we were about the same. We were both around fifty kilos. I don't know how that converts to pounds. Times it by two point two. So I I was about fifty kilos, not anymore. And and so, and the bike was about the same. <laughs> oh my god! Really? Yeah. Damn, yeah. that's a heavy bike. Oh crap. Yeah. And, and then, of course, I, I know I know what it's like cycling, and then you have to go up some climbs. And I can only imagine, I'm sure you countered some big climbs you had to ride up. Oh, absolute bastards. Yeah, horrible things, hills, really, hills. I mean, you, things, again, you don't notice. Perhaps even when you're walking, you don't notice. But when you're cycling, the, just the slightest incline, drop a gear, drop a gear. And I knew, I remember six months into it, I was going, you'd, you'd go up a hill, you'd listen. When vehicles overtake, you'd listen for a change in engine tone to denote that they changed gear and were now going down the other side. Or you'd look for big antennas, on, uh, which would, you know, depict the, the, the top of the mountain. And you'd look for these aerials and stuff, anything to tell you were getting closer to the summit and going down the other side. And in the case of China, because it was so cold, you'd be right up the sunny side and then you'd get you'd be going down the freezing side. So you, there was ice on the road. Your sweat would be freeze drying on you. And uh, so, <laughs> well, now you you, you you wore typical cycling gear, right? For that? No. See, this is the other thing. Um, because you, you know, like I say, you're going into these little villages, these jungle villages, and I did not want to look like a lycra-clad Tour de France guy. Um, <laughs> For the sake of trying to blend in, I mean, how am I going to blend in with long hair and pierced ears and tattoos and everything? But still, I can. I, I didn't want to have some posing pouch like a ballerina going in and saying, "Have you got some water, please?" So I was wearing, you know, normal, you know, combat trousers. What do you call them in America? You know, like uh, camouflage trousers and, and a, a t-shirt or, or more layers if it was cold. And so no, I was not wearing cycling gear, not just because I didn't have it, but because I did in India meet an American guy who, who looked like he comes straight from Tour de France, all in lycra, and he had the cycle helmet and everything. And I thought, oh, you know, we all stand out in India, but you, mate, look like you've just come out of a sort of an action hero plastic <laughs> package or something. <laughs> um, so I guess at this point, did you have the purple fatigues? Uh, yeah, um, no, I, they were black and white, actually. Uh, yeah, fatigues, that's because I, they, they were black and white camouflage. And, uh, and and they were all I had. And when in China, it was so damn cold. And I'd been wearing them for like four or five weeks. And finally, I got this little room which had hot water. I thought, I've just got to wash them, you know, I just got to wash them. And I, oh, it had heating as well, it had a sort of radiator. And I stomped in the bath. And again, this is before digital photography. So a, a scene had to be pretty special to take a photograph of it. And I stomped on them in the bathtub and the water was just black. And I've got a photograph of that. And then I put them on the radiator, slept in this little room and like waking every hour to turn them as if you're sort of roasting a hog on a spit roast or something. <laughs> So they had to be dry by the next morning. And, and they sort of did, but the moisture that came off them froze on the windows. And I got up in the morning, went to look out the window, and there's just, I couldn't work out. It was like this distorted view. And there was ice on the inside of the windows from the moisture from my trousers. I've been oh, please tell me there's pictures of all this in the book. 
Well, there, well, actually, there won't be because it's expensive to put pictures in books, but there will be on the website. So oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Where did you sleep and where did you eat? Uh, right. Well, I did take camping stuff with me. Um, so I did camp from time to time. Uh, so uh, right. tent sleeping bag. Again, tent sleeping bag. Um, don't think I had a thermo rest. So it was just a tent and sleeping bag was the extent of my camping gear. And I certainly didn't have cooking gear. Definitely didn't have cooking gear. So I'd have maybe protein bars or something like that. So I sometimes camp, uh, sometimes get a little guest house. They weren't, Thailand's a very easy country to travel through. And even if it's a non-touristy area, they've just got this wonderful nature, the Thais, a very sure. can-do. And I would frequently, cars would frequently stop and, you know, where you're from, where you go, where you stay, and would uh, to advise you of places to go. Or, you know, it, it, at two o'clock in the afternoon, you don't really want to stop. And they say, oh, long way next town, you, best you stop here. And so we well, are probably right then. <laughs> and I think that was the other downside. You know, again, on a motorbike, you can do a 10-hour day, a 12-hour day. It's not impossible. Right. But you simply can't on a bicycle because you are knackered. You can't cycle anymore. And I used to start very early, some, particularly in India, I'd get up before dawn. Um, so I was on the road at first light, uh, beat the heat of the day. And then really by and and so you'd have a breakfast at maybe six or seven you'd have a lunch at maybe 11 you'd have another lunch at two and then you'd cycle maybe another hour and then you were done and and then what do you do because you're sort of on your own and and, and those they were sometimes if you weren't in an exciting place that was that could be a little bit you know you, you do your laundry if you're in a hot place you know you wash your your because you do sweat a bit a little bit enough. just a little <laughs> <laughs> just a little so the bike, the cycling was great. The stopping, depending on where it was, was not always so great. Yeah. You know, there were times where there were other times um, where if you like, for example, I was simply out of water and there was nothing more. I was I was I was done for. And the road was so steep. I couldn't even get traction when I pushed on the pedals. The back wheel just spun and I was just throwing the bike to the ground and sulking. It was just nothing. Oh, man. And I'd already passed a village, which I really didn't want to stop in. When I say a village, I mean some smoke coming out of the trees in the jungle and some thatched huts made of bamboo, which I just, it's, I village? scared. It just, yeah. I mean, it wasn't scared. It just felt, it felt intrusive to, to go into their, into their tribe. Um, Anyway, again, I was there was a, a, I'd reached this other little dwelling, this little community, and the kids came out, and I sort of pointed at my water bottle, and, uh, and somehow they instinctively knew I couldn't drink their water. I had this weak Western tummy, and so they took me to the village elder who had some water boiling over a fire, and he gave me some of his water. And I thought to myself, well, this is probably my last chance. And so I had some instant noodles. I thought, I'll pour those, put the instant noodles in my water bottle, then at least I've got food as well as, as hydration. And so um, normally in a situation like that, I'd leave as soon as I got what I wanted. But I stood at, on the road outside of this little community, this little dwelling, and, and had my noodles out before they got cold and got stuck in my water bottle. <laughs> And, and this car came along, which was very rare. I mean, you see one car every three or four hours. This car came along. And, the, and generally, the only people who, because it was right on the border of Myanmar. And so a lot of the cars generally were English-speaking Thai people who were teak dealers, who would buy the trees and deal in teak. <laughs> and they were the, I, I, you wouldn't believe how many teak dealers I met. So, um, and he said, and he said the same thing. He said, you know, you, you should stay here tonight. Um, because you, you're not going to get anywhere else. Jungle nights fall quickly, and uh, you're going to be out there in the middle of nowhere. So they offered me, they, they brought me back in, sat me in this in this little hut on stilts where all the livestock ran underneath, chickens and pigs and everything, and fed me. But some food was okay, so it was just unedible. And you try and eat it as best you could, and you try and engage in conversation. I don't speak a word of Thai, I don't speak a word of English. You mime and you smile and you, and that. There's a semicircle of kids sat behind me, sort of looking at a strange person, and sitting cross-legged on the floor. And you try and eat something out of politeness that was put on your plate, which was really horrendous to, to eat. And you turn your head to talk or smile, and you go, and you've been replaced, and there's another one for you. <laughs> 
I, I, I've, I've read stories of, uh, of travelers who have been going through areas like that, and then they, the only thing that they would subject themselves to voluntarily is bread. <laughs> because yeah. because they did not want to eat what they were offering, you know. So, um, but wow, but but because you but you did bring camping gear, and now if you did camp, did you just like throw the tent down anywhere? Uh, yeah. Um, well, I, I've always I've, I've loved to wild camp, not just about saving money, but just about you know I like being able to just. Oh yeah, it's great. Right. It's it's far easier to be stealthy on a on a bicycle than it is on a motorcycle. Uh, so yeah, there was one time there was this place there was and, it, and the sign was written in Thai and English and it says something like Tree Rehabilitation Center, and uh, it was uh, this what? sort of a reserve where they um, where they were trying to fix trees or something. <laughs> so odd. I went there and they were clearly quite educated people. You have to be if you want to work at a tree rehabilitation center. So yeah. you've got to, although possibly their powers of translation weren't that good because um, perhaps it wasn't a tree rehabilitation center. But anyway, um, they, they spoke some English and I said, you know, do you want me to keep an eye on your addicted tree overnight while you go home? So uh, so they did. So I got to sleep amongst, it's like that Rush song, you know, <laughs> sleeping amongst these, these trees who were suffering from withdrawal. So I camped there one night. <laughs> Trees with addiction. There's a song in there somewhere. <laughs> oh my god! Um, you know, as a cyclist, I understand what kind of challenges you face uh, when you're out on the road, especially for an extended period of time. Now, I I have to believe that you got some flats. I have to believe that there were just like parts of that you just couldn't handle. It's like, what kind of challenges challenges did you face along the way? Yeah, punctures, of course. In fact, I bought the bike. I was still in the centre of the city, Bangkok, and I'd already got a puncture. I don't think I'd actually been anywhere yet. I pushed, <laughs> pushed the bike from one guest house where I'd stayed, loaded it with all my luggage, all my backpack and everything, and pushed it to my new um, guest house, like a wheelbarrow, really, already discovering the advantages of two-wheel travel. Think, well, this is great. You know, I've been carrying my pack if I didn't have this bicycle. And by the time I got to my new guest house, I got a bloody puncher. And uh, I didn't have a punch repair kit because I hadn't got that far yet. You know, it was only the first day I bought it. And the guy who owned it, I mean, he was a wealth of knowledge, having been on the road for years, uh, came and, and uh, he got the tube, pumped it up and uh, put it in the toilet bowl to look for the bubbles. <laughs> Uh, that was puncture number one. Um, there, there was another time in India where I was in um, really, uh, I, it, it, it was a place that clearly wasn't travelled through. They, I think they were quite an inbred population and it's never really scary, but they're always interested. But these people were somewhat demented and obsessed. And I felt like the Pied Piper, they, everyone was just following me and I was really trying to get away. And um, and I got bloody puncher then as well. There was a level crossing. That's right. There was a level crossing, and they're not automatic. There was a little guy with sort of a bicycle wheel, and he pushes his bicycle wheel around, and it lifts up the level crossing uh, to, let, to let the traffic. Go. And he saw me coming, and he lifted it up and then dropped it down. And I did like moment reprieve. I the, this crowd of frantic inbred Indians behind me have been trapped behind the level crossing, um, and then I got a puncher. And they all started to catch up with me. And then um, a crowd came from the other direction. I thought, oh, God, I'm just going to incite a riot here. And, uh, and I thought, there's no time to make a punch. So I just got my pump, pumped up as quick as I could, cycled off through it and uh, trying to keep the weight. I think it was in the back wheel and trying to keep the weight off the back wheel and, and cycle over. And then the road ended. There was just a river just a river I said, oh god you know no wonder anybody's looking at me no one comes down this road it's a dead end and this there was this little boat two indians in this little rowing boat and uh, they're like you want to cross i just said yeah I like, they've got this water bottle this plastic liter water bottle and they're fending off the kids with this water bottle as i'm loading my bike and myself on this boat got on this boat and it was almost funny except it was just a bit frantic and wow. then as they rode me, I didn't even ask the price you know and uh, and as they rode me across this river I fixed my puncture and then on the other end 
paid him for the lift and cycled off. So uh, yeah, there, there were punches for a bugger. Did you did you bring any spare tubes with you? No, I don't think I had a spare tube. I did, of course, get tire leaves and a punch repair kit um, before I left, which I used, you know, regularly. Because punches never occur at a good time. No, of course <laughs> no, of course not. You know, you, and, you, you uh, always carry the spare tubes with you and all the stuff, and then you never, you know, it's not until you, you've used them all do you get actually get the, the, the puncture, you know? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I, maybe I actually know, maybe I did have a spare tube. I might have had a spare tube. I... I I, this is the other thing. When you're writing a diary from 20 years ago or reading the diary, yeah. there would be a whole sequence of days you have no recollection of at all, you know? I mean, I know I must have done it because it's my handwriting. Yeah. <laughs> wow. But, now, now, you can, now, you cycle through China and you're in, in India. What, as far as it goes for the terrain, I know because I know you got some climbs going on in there, like you said, in China. <laughs> what, where, where, where did you find the, the, the biggest climbs that you had to ride up? Oh, definitely China. I was in the Yuan product, uh, province of China, uh, which is sort of the eastern edge of the Himalayas. Uh, technically, it doesn't count as the Himalayas, but if you look at the Himalayan range and you watch it go across uh, from sort of Pakistan and through sort of India and, and Nepal and, and, and go right through Bhutan and stuff, it or head east, I should say, rather than right. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, it's that same mountain range, although it's called uh, something else. Yeah. But, so the point, point is, they're big mountains um, and, and stunning. I've always loved mountains and, and stunningly beautiful. And the, of course, the paybacks of going at that time of year isn't just the tourist count low and the guest houses are cheap. It's that the skies are clear, um, which they're generally not in the summer. It's hazy and cloudy. Oh, really? So I was treated to absolutely crystal clear, blue, high altitude skies with white mountain ranges and prayer flags. And the scenery was stunning, absolutely beautiful and unpolluted by both human, uh, you know, humans and tourists, as well as the, the, the pollution of, of mankind. So I was treated to some absolutely stunning scenery all to myself. So oh, that, that was man. the reward. Yeah. Now, did you set a mileage goal each day or did you just stop when you had enough? No, it, it, uh, <laughs> your body decides, really. <laughs> I, there, there were times it would be nice to try and do a three-figure day. If I could do 100 kilometers, which is about 60 miles, yeah, um, that right. would be good. And I think my record was about 170 kilometers, so just over 100 miles. Wow. Uh, which was a, a, a fluke, you know. Yeah. And I suffered, and then nothing for three days. You know? Yeah, well, yeah. But other than nothing but nursing blisters and sweat rash and heat rash, you know. <laughs> Especially when the bike isn't really suited for your frame itself, you know. <laughs> you know I've done 100-mile days uh, on a bicycle, and I know how you, you feel at the end of that, you know. Walking is a chore, you know, but it is there is not, you know, if you have a good vigorous workout at a gym, you might be tired, but it's with this sort of you have this vitality about you. But on a bicycle, no, you're just done. <laughs> <laughs> you're just plain done. So big question. I, I and I don't know if you have this this information, but start to finish, how many total miles did you ride? Um, I don't have that information. On the, in the book, I always log the mileage of the day. I don't think I ever totaled it. And I did buy myself a little trip computer. I mean, this was another thing. When you meet other cyclists, their trip computers would tell them everything. Yeah. You know, average speed, pulse rate, calories burned. Um, it, they, they were infinite uh, little computers of, of knowledge and, and yeah, like stats. It's, it's like it's like these things here that that you wish you had. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like that. Like yeah. that. I have yeah. to, I have to install this yet. <laughs> um, so I I suppose if you worked on uh, an average of I suppose to be kind maybe seventy or eighty kilometers a day for two months, three months. Well, the first trip was three months. The second one was a bit less. But I don't have the stats uh, at hand. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, because, again, it wasn't about, you know, I wasn't doing this for charity. I wasn't doing this for uh, 
point A to point B. Right. And I wasn't doing it for sort of personal record-breaking achievements. I just wanted to cycle off and see what it was like. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's that's, that's perfectly fine. Wow. Uh, wow. So, so you, what, what, as far as it goes for the places you went, do you have any favorites? Uh, as far as countries or as far as actual just in, in general just places in general that that just still stick out in your memory um well certainly to uh, i got very close almost as close as you can get to tibet without a permit when i was in china okay and again in in those mountains it was just so stunningly beautiful and and not not just the scenery but the the little townships were built from like local materials so you'd have like slate rock roofs and again it was winter it was so cold the roads the paths were just mud um the the motor vehicles were so few it was horse or yak um which were parked outside and it really was like going back in time uh, and you, it was a real privilege to, to be there. And again, you, you go through it stealthily. I mean, I, I know from experience when I've gone through little villages on a motorbike, they hear you before they see you. Yeah. On a bicycle, you hear them before they see you. And so you get <laughs> to have a far more personal insight. Yeah. Uh, so, so experiences like that. I mean, Thailand's a very, like I say, an easy country uh, to, to travel. And, and I found it was easy to get away from the tourist tracks as well. And, and India's just, I mean, I've been to, I've been to India before that trip and many times since, and India's just um, a chaotic, magical place, um, which is often enjoyed best in retrospect, because it can be a bit full on when you're there. <laughs> I can um, imagine. <laughs> but they, 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 were, they were wonderful. They were little things. Like, for example, as I said, I'd get up super early uh, because the best miles were the first miles when you were fresh from a night's sleep, sure. when, the, when it was cool in the morning. And you go into that morning, there'd be a big orange sun just coming up. There'd be palm tree shades. There'd be monkeys squawking. There'd be the smell of the freshly baked and the freshly cooked. And I was, in a, and, and it was quiet. The whole country was not awake and active. So it was, it was a wonderful part of the morning. And this Muslim gentleman had just uh, come out of his house, out of his gate on his bicycle and rode by my side. And he said, um, would you like to take tea with me, sir? And it was a wonderful, unassuming um, uh, invitation. But I just loved this part of the day so much. I just wanted to cycle. I just wanted to get my miles in before the bl- brutal heat of the day. Sure. And I and I and I said, "Oh, you know, no, I refused him," which was really stupid because, firstly, I could have used a cup of tea. That would have been very nice. I didn't even have my breakfast yet. Secondly, it would have been a lovely experience just to cycle side by side. We did cycle side by side for a little while. And, and then, of course, I stopped for a chai anyway. I wanted a cup of tea anyway, because that's what you tend to ride on. That's your fuel. And I really, on the one hand, there's this regret that I didn't take his invitation. But on the other hand, the memory I still have of this sunrise, of this little hazy dawn and, and this interaction, wonderful little things like that. They really stay with you. It was, it was, uh, it was really cool. Oh, that's awesome. That's really great. Um, would you do it again? No, oh, bloody hell, no, no, no. You don't want to think about it for a minute? <laughs> you know, it's really funny. I've got the bicycle, still got the bicycle, and I've got it here with me in Bulgaria. And when I first started writing, I thought, oh, you know, it's been sitting there with flat tyres. I should take it for a ride, you know, or bring some memory back. It will help with the description because the handlebars would creak when you go uphill because you'd be putting that much pressure on it. The, the handlebar stem would sort of creak inside the frame. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll cycle. And I've, I've lived in this place in Bulgaria for seven years and I walk the road every morning. I do this walk up the road and back across the fields past this lake. And I know that road so well. I know every pothole and, uh, and I say, and I say, I'll cycle it. And I didn't realize it was an incline. <laughs> I never noticed it. <laughs> And I probably didn't cycle a mile. And I turned around and realized I could freewheel back because there was a slight incline. And I thought, well, I'll, tomorrow I'll go a little bit further. You know, I'll develop my stamina. And that was that. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so no more no more bicycle journeys, huh? Oh, no, no, I really don't think You've so. done that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's really stupid, really. It's really hard work. <laughs> it's, I, th- I'd say that in, I think I say that in the introduction. At one point in the book, 
I say, you know, the, the difference is where my other books may sort of incite you and encourage you and enthuse and, and make you want to give up your work and jump on a bike and go and see. I said, you ain't going to get that with this book. <laughs> Because <laughs> I make no secret of the fact it's really bloody hard work. <laughs> without without giving uh, without giving away too much, I, I did notice you did something really interesting with with the book, in, in that uh, in in an effort to describe uh, where you were, you you headed off each uh, se- segment of the book with, with a small illustration of either the elephant or uh, the bowl of noodles to indicate where yeah. you were. Yeah, because the narrative changes within each chapter from the from the China trip to the India trip, which my copywriter called the elephant narrative and the dragon narrative. Or something. <laughs> um, and, and, and it just to try, because I thought you don't want to write China or Thailand and a heading. It, 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 so I thought, well, if I just put a little symbol, and so I pulled some off the internet, which of course didn't have the copyright to, to do, and Amanda Zito, uh, as the magpie flies, do you know who I mean? Yes, as a matter of fact, she's going to be on the show. Oh, is she, right? Yeah. Well, uh, she, uh, contact her, and she did the cover of the book, probably the best cover I've ever had. Everybody loves it. It's a great the book. It's Judge, great. Judging by the, I mean, people judge books by their covers, obviously, and judging by the pre-orders, which really, you know, I said at the beginning, the faithful readers who, who really just buy my books without even really knowing the content are buying it based on the title. I should have left the whiskey and, <laughs> and the cover, which she designed, which is absolutely fantastic. And she's crafty because when she first started working, she did like three or four different sketches for me. One was a whiskey bottle with a bicycle in it. One was like the Great Wall of China. There was another one and there was this glass holding a whiskey uh, a hand, I mean, holding a whiskey glass, and inside the whiskey glass was a bicycle. And I, well, it doesn't really, because I didn't have a glass with me, I was drinking out the bottle. Uh, it's not true to the book, but it's such a captivating picture. Sure. And so the, the next pi- the next contact, I said, well, you know, the choices you sent me, I love the whiskey glass. You know, it doesn't really refer to the book, but I love it. She said, ah, she said, then I'll work for you because if you'd have chosen the others, I wouldn't have done it. That's the best picture. You're right. <laughs> oh my God, I didn't even realize. Didn't even realize it was a test. <laughs> it's a wonderful illustration, and uh, it, she's she's great. She's great. She's like oh, said, she's going to be on show. So talented, and she's so professional as well. It's been oh, absolutely. With her. If you get a chance um, to watch her YouTube channel, she she really makes a wonderful production. I watched a bit just to know who I was sort of dealing with and, yeah. and that, yeah. And uh, so, so anyway, so she did the illustrations for me as well. So she did the bowl of noodles and she did the elephant. And and it's like I'm just about to start recording the audio version. And I'm thinking, well, what am I going to do? How am I going to oh, yeah. the caps? What am I going to say? Bowl of noodles. <laughs> That's not going to work. So I was just talking to my sound engineer and I said, you know, we need to get like a sitar. I'm, I'm, I'm listening to the audio version of um, Siddhartha at the moment. And they've got this wonderful bit of sitar and this wailing Indian woman's voice. I thought, well, yeah, that's what I want. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Now, so, I mean, were there any other any other little illustrations to indicate where you were? Or is it just the elephant and a bowl uh, of noodles? Oh, uh, Amanda also did the maps for me as well. So oh, okay. Yes, I did see those the maps. They were good. Yeah, so she did those. Incidentally, um, if any of your listeners um, own or play a sitar, I would really, I need like a, a five-second soundbite. Get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> well, see what we can do. We'll provide something for you. <laughs> or, or know a, a wailing Indian woman, you know, something like Great Gig in the Sky, but in an uh, Indian version. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. When, when do you, uh, so you're working on an audio book now. When do you expect that to well, be finished? I'm, wor- I'm working on getting the levels right. I've mean, oh, okay. spent two days just trying to get the recording levels right. I've forgotten ever for now that how it works. Um, probably just because I'm starting it now. I mean, it, it ain't going to, by the time it gets done, by the time it gets mastered, by the time it gets uploaded, by the time Amazon or Audible acknowledge it, we're going to be talking May at least. So it's going to be a long, long time okay. before that's right. out. But the, the best time to work on it is now because I'm so familiar with the book. Um, it's going to, I'm hoping it's going to be much easier to read because I'm so familiar with the book having, you know, proofread and gone through the copy edit and, and, and read it so many times at the moment. I'm, I'm hoping this is the ideal time to read it. Time will right. tell. And plus it's winter, so you're not really going anywhere anyway. That's another very good point, yes. Yeah, that's there's that. <laughs> now, the book, which can be pre-ordered now, 
when is it officially coming out? Right. Well, we're always on wait on Amanda, actually. It's quite funny. We had, we had a Skype conversation the other day. I said, you know, I said, no pressure. There's always something that's going to be last. And it's you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> no, it's only because I've been uh, on the back cover. I wanted a whiskey bottle sort of angle on so you can see like two sides of it. And I wanted the blurb on both sides of the as on the label of the whiskey bottle. Uh, but it's simply not possible because it'd be so small you'll be able to read it. So, um, and she's made it quite clear that you can't do it like that. No. So, um, so anyway, so in the end, I've been less precious, less pedantic about it. I said, look, Amanda, you've proved yourself. Just please let me give you back your full artistic license. Just do whatever you want. I know it'll be great. Uh, and, and that's it. When she's done with that and the, and the, and we're talking to you I'm talking to you now on a, on a Saturday and this is her busy time because she uploads her, her weekly video at the weekend right and when that and when she gets that back to me uh, sometime next week we'll go after the printer and the printer since I last spoke to him is now ex they're in Poland have expanded their premises massively so they can turn it around in about five days and I'm going to fly back to England, meet the books, and send out all the pre-orders. So, really, I mean, I always said, people, I mean, originally I wanted a Christmas release, but there was no way that's going to happen. Again, you know, it's cycling is about a slow pace. The the whole point of the book, despite I talk at a million miles an hour, the whole point of the book is a slower pace, a calming pace. In our hectic, crazy world, this is about just taking a breath and taking a little bit of time. And I thought to myself, oh, I'm going to rush this for a, a pre-Christmas release. It's absolutely everything that the book is not about. So I took the time and I will continue to take my time to get it absolutely right. You don't work on a project for a year to just rush it the last minute and screw it up. Sure. Um, and so, but despite saying that, I did tell the pre-order people you'll get it before the end of the month, before the end of January, and you will. Um, overseas is going to obviously take a little bit longer, and it isn't going to be on Amazon or Kindle for a little while uh, because, because it's purely going to be sales from the website. And once I've got the book, once it's out, and then after the book is released from the website, then it will be available on Amazon and Kindle. But... You know, they take such a huge chunk. You get so little in return. The only reward you really get for, for a year's work, a year of, of non-payment, is to actually get those website sales. And that's why I'm doing it this way. Okay. So, plus, you know, what you don't get on a Kindle is you're not going to get the illustration. You're not going to get the maps. You're not going... And, and the same if you get a print-on-demand version. You'll get it, but... The, the tactile, the beauty of the book is is something that's, uh, for, for an older generation who are not sort of so electronically orientated, there's something very nice about having the book, you know, flick back to the map and see the route and look, flick forward to the text and, and stuff. So that's why the book is going to be the only version initially. And, uh, and yeah, it should be out before the end of the month. Excellent. Look forward to that. Um, so how can people learn more? Uh, about your journey and get the book what's the best way to go about all this uh well at this stage definitely uh my website uh grandfield.co.uk and there is a very long synopsis about the book there's also a link to a youtube video where i sort of do a q and a um all about the book um and uh, and also my other trips there's plenty of photos there and you can read about the other trips you can see right. links to youtube videos and various other interviews and um it's a website full it will pass a, a winter's afternoon quite um because <laughs> it's really slow to load <laughs> <laughs> actually I, I really like your website i think it's really informative and there's a lot of great information on it i, I really enjoy it <laughs> Um, any last comments uh, for those interested in subjecting themselves to such a trip? Oh, don't do it. No, it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> That's not very encouraging, Graham. <laughs> uh, well, if you're going to do it, if you want to do it, listen, if I can do it, you really can. You know, it, like I said, there was no training beforehand. There was no clue. And it was... You can get on a bicycle and push those pedals around and you can go as, as far as your stamina will take you. And um, and it, it, the great thing about a bicycle is, you know, it's not like you're riding a, a, a $12,000 GS. If it does go desperately wrong, you just walk away from it. <laughs> <laughs> go to the beach. I don't know if that's sound advice, but okay, you got to have a point there. <laughs> but, 
it's, it's the fact that I think the point with all of my books is, you know, I do not come from any sort of privileged circumstance. It's only determination. That's all you need. Passport and determination and not yeah. even a huge amount of money either. So these things are definitely doable. And, and I sort of really want to sort of emphasize at the end what I said at the beginning. You know, this ain't a book about stamina and lycra. It's a book about cluelessness determination and what you get if you put your mind to something you know it's yeah. just a biker on a bicycle that's what it is <laughs> absolutely graham i want to thank you very much for being on the podcast and telling me about your new book um i should have left the whiskey which will be out uh by the end of this month and pre-orders are being accepted right now and don't forget to go to graham's website all the links will be in the show notes we'll have that all taken care of uh, and of course, you can also go to the Motorcycle Men website, and there'll be links to everything Graham Field uh, there on the website. Graham, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Don't go anywhere. I want to talk to you. Um, that's it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Ted. I was really pleased that that went really well, considering I've never talked about it before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you take care of yourself. We'll talk soon. Cheers. Bye. The Motorcycle Men Podcast is supporting David's Dream and Believe Cancer Foundation. If you'd like to see your money go to something that actually makes a difference, go to davidsdreamandbelieve.org to donate. And the Gold Star Ride Foundation, helping families of fallen soldiers. If you would like to be a part of a great cause and get some heartfelt miles in, get on over to goldstarride.org and learn how you can participate in the next Gold Star Ride. Thank you for joining me and Graham here on the Motorcycle Men Podcast, episode 333. You can learn more about Graham by going to his website at grahamfield.co.uk. Links will be in the show notes and, of course, on the Motorcycle Men website. Don't forget to get on over to the Motorcycle Men YouTube channel to watch some of the many videos that are there. And also get over to the ride with ted youtube channel there are a bunch of videos there again the latest there is the review of the scorpion helmet st 1400 carbon helmet so get on over there and check that out on youtube for the rest of the motorcycle men team thanks for listening and remember boys and girls we say stupid crap so you don't have to ride safe kids <laughs>